The scripture passage we'll be looking at this morning is found in the 61st chapter of the prophecy given through Isaiah. Isaiah 61, Isaiah 61, and we'll be reading the first three verses. Please give your attention to God's word. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. If you have been a part of this congregation for any length of time, you'll probably recognize that this passage is the basis for our church vision statement. You'll find it there at the end of the service in the bulletin. Our vision statement is worded in this way, by God's grace, we long to become oaks of righteousness, growing roots deep in God's word, bearing fruit of God-centered holiness and worship, and branching out in gospel-centered witness and service to State College, to Penn State, Central Pennsylvania, and the world. Now, I know that many of us roll our eyes cynically when we hear church leaders talk about vision or mission. We see it as either irrelevant hype and marketing or a lame attempt to incorporate worldly business practices into the ministry of the church. I know that's how many of you respond because I was once one of you. I, uh, I was a huge skeptic when I first came into ministry. Matter of fact, when I started in ministry, that's when vision and mission statements for churches began to be really popular and it seemed like every church had to have one and, and it started to uh, show up in all the church's literatures. But then, you know, as I realized that I was being too much of a skeptic, that maybe there was some truth in this popular movement, maybe the church was recognizing something that was important to its ministry. And what really helped me is I started taking uh, church revitalization training under Reverend Harry Reeder. And one of the first lessons that Harry taught us was the importance of having a biblical vision. And I sat there skeptically through much of the first lesson that he taught. But what really convinced me that I needed to rethink this was when he started going through scripture and showing how all of the leaders that God called to serve him in scripture were given a vision for God's people as, an, as a means of leading them. And so he talked about Abraham and how God gave him 
a vision, a mental picture of the future, that his family would become a great nation. And that great nation would be planted in a prosperous land. And that great nation in that prosperous land would be a blessing to all nations. That's a powerful visual image. Moses led the people through the wilderness by sharing with them repeatedly that he was leading them by God's grace to a land that was flowing with milk and honey. That's a powerful visual image for people who had lived for generations in slavery and poverty. Even Jesus himself, Luke 9 tells us that he set his face to go to Jerusalem. That it was a vision of his objective of hanging on the cross to die for his people that drove him through his ministry. And Hebrews speaks of that vision that Christ had in this way. It says, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. So it wasn't the suffering of the cross, but the joy that awaited him in his victory through the resurrection after the cross that drove him through the worst suffering that anyone has ever endured. It was a vision for a glorious future. Even the New Testament metaphors for the church are visual images not just of who we are in Christ, but who we will become in Christ. Think of those visual pictures. We are the bride of Christ. We are the branches of the vine. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We are the body of Christ. These are all visual images that we are to keep in mind, to keep in before us, to pursue with passion. Even the wild, symbolic images apocalyptic images that we find in the books of Daniel and Ezekiel and Revelation are given to us as a picture of our future, a picture of what we will be by God's grace one day. Dr. Reeder used a definition given by the pollster George Barna of a biblical vision, which I found helpful. Here's his definition. It's a clear mental image of a preferable future imparted by God to his chosen servants and is based upon an accurate understanding of God, self, and circumstances. Let me read that to you again. A clear mental image of a preferable future imparted by God to his chosen servants and is based upon an accurate understanding of God, self, and circumstances. Probably the most powerful speech that we can remember in American history was the speech that was given by Dr. Martin Luther King when he stood on that plaza in Washington, D.C., and the core phrase of his speech was, I have a dream. And he portrayed a vision of the future of what justice and equality could bring to our country. It was a powerful message. Read it again sometime. It's a powerful message because he laid before the American people an image of a preferable future. I began to realize as I worked through 
these lessons with Dr. Reeder that a God-given vision for the future is really the difference between a dying church and a healthy and vibrant church. I mean, if you could picture, for instance, 50 people, you could, let's say two groups of 50 people, and demographically, socioeconomically, spiritually, they're basically very similar groups of people. But one group of 50 people is the remnant of a church that has declined over many years from a church of 400. And the other 50 people are a brand new group of people that have been brought together to plant a brand new church. Why do you expect this group to continue to struggle and decline and this group to grow and flourish? Why do we have that expectation based on what we've seen and experienced? It's because this group, the church plant, has a vision. They have a view of their future that's positive. They're working for something great in the future, whereas this group tends to look backward on its glory days in the past. I got that, that idea from what Dr. Reeder said is that there's basically three kinds of churches. There are churches that are monument churches, churches that look back to a more glorious past. And then he talks about maintenance churches, churches that are happy just to maintain their program, to maintain their membership, to maintain their organization. As long as they add as many new members as they lose, they've had a successful year. As long as they meet the budget, they've had a successful year. But then he talks about movement churches. Churches that are going somewhere. Churches that are vision-driven. And the desire of the leadership here at Oakwood has always been to be a movement church. Not in a monument church, not a maintenance church, but a movement church. And not just going somewhere but going where God has called us to go. Before we look more closely at this passage, which is the basis for our church's vision statement in Isaiah 61, just a few more thoughts about the value, the benefits of having a, what Barna calls a clear mental image of a preferable future imparted by God. First benefit is that's where our inspiration and our motivation comes from. Think about your own work, your job. When you get up on Monday morning, are you excited to get to work or are you begrudgingly dragging yourself there because it's what you have to do? I'm certain at the root of that is a sense of vision. It's a sense of expectation. It's a sense of what awaits me when I get there and what's the meaning and purpose and significance of what I do while I'm there. It's, a, it's really a matter of vision. The same is true for the church. When you come to church on Sunday morning for worship, when you come to your Bible study on Wednesday evening or Thursday evening, when you, you go to a class or when you show up for a committee meeting or a team meeting or show up for a ministry event, are you excited? Are you driven to be there? Or are you just showing up kind of grinding your teeth and begrudging the fact that you have to be there? Again, it comes back to vision. What's your expectation? What do you see as the, as the future to your efforts? The second benefit of vision is it helps you to go through changes. Most people resist change, but a movement must change. If 
The, the idea of movement going from point A to point B requires change. And so you must embrace the idea of change, and it's a view of a positive future that enables you to get through it. When you think of all the changes, even just that this building has gone through in the last year, it's been hard at times. It's been frustrating at times. We've had to deal with numerous inconveniences. We've had to shut down ministries. But why did we get through it? Why are we still happy, joyous, excited at this point at the end of the project? Because we, for, through the whole thing, we're looking at the final project. We're looking at pictures of what it would look like. We were driven by a vision of a completed building and what that would do. I was reminded so many times of the importance of vision when I would talk to one of our beloved long-term members, whom I won't name because she would kill me if I did, but many times people, because she, she's, uh, she's one of the most long-term members, people would come to her and say, how do you feel about all this? And I, I just always struck by her answer, this is hard. This is hard for me to see everything change so much, but I'm excited about it because I know where we're going. And that's the kind of attitude that vision gives you. Not looking back, but looking forward to what will be. Another benefit of vision is, that it, is it keeps you on track and gives you direction for all the decisions that you make. Remember the story from Alice in Wonderland when Alice met the Cheshire Cat. And she asked the Cheshire Cat sitting up there in the tree, she says, which road should I take? Because she was lost. And the cat asked her, well, where do you want to go? And she said to the cat, I don't know. Then he says, it doesn't really matter then, does it? Well, that's very much what leadership in the church is like. You know, what should we do? Where should we go? What ministry initiatives should we implement? What things should we be doing? Well, where do you want to go? Where are you headed? Well, we don't know. Well, then it doesn't really matter, does it? See, that's what a vision of what your destination is important to make the decisions of how you get from here to there. And finally, a vision is what attracts resources. It first of all attracts leaders. Because you know what leaders, when God creates a leader, he wires a leader to be moving, to be leading, to making things happen. And leaders are drawn to churches that are movements. And when you attract leaders, what you inherently do is produce ministry, produce impact, because that's what leaders are called by God and wired by God to do. And so visionary ministries attract leaders, which is a great resource, the most important resource in many ways, as we saw a couple weeks ago. But it also attracts sacrificial giving. When we started this building project, we had no idea where the millions of dollars were going to come from to accomplish it. We could not see it. But we stepped out in faith, trusting the Lord to provide, and we've watched him do it every step of the way. It attracts sacrificial giving because God's people want to give to ministry that is making an impact and a difference for the kingdom. So vision is important, but what every, all these benefits that I just listed would be true of a secular organization or a secular company or a secular business. All of these things are true out there in the world as well as in the church. So what makes the difference for a church? 
Well, let's go back to Barna's definition. A vision is a clear mental image of a preferable future imparted by God. What makes the church different? We're, we're an organization, and we can operate by all the, the common grace, general principles of how organizations work well or don't work well. So a vision is going to be helpful to us. But what's important is, is it a vision that comes from God or is it a vision that comes from man? We must go to God's word to find out what our vision is. And that's what leads us back to Isaiah 61. Isaiah 61 is about good news. You see that in the first verse. It's all about good news. That's the word, that's what the word gospel means. And so the vision has to first and foremost be about the gospel. Well, what is the good news of Isaiah 61? We have to look at it in context and just flip back for a second to chapter 60. Chapter 60 is a long chapter. You'll notice if you have the ESV, it has the title, The Future Glory of Israel. The Future Glory of God's People. And in chapter 60, what you have there is a picture. A lot of it's very, very easy to have a mental picture of everything that, that is being described here by the prophet Isaiah. And it's a picture of the promises that were given to Abraham being fulfilled. Remember, Abraham was told, I will make of your family a great nation. That nation I will plant in a prosperous land. And that nation in that prosperous land will be a blessing to all nations. And that's what you see being fulfilled in the future in chapter 60. Verse 4, your sons and daughters shall come from afar. God shall gather his people to himself. Verse 5, the wealth of the nations shall come to you. Verse 7, I will beautify my house. Verse 15, I will make you majestic forever. Verse 18, violence shall, be no more, shall no more be heard in your land. Verses 19 and 20, the sun shall no more be your light by day, but the Lord will be your everlasting light. Your days of mourning shall be ended. And verse 21, your people shall all be righteous. They shall possess the land forever. Doesn't that sound a lot like, just a couple weeks ago, we were looking at, at Revelation chapters 21 and 22. Doesn't that sound exactly like the image that is given us at the end of Scripture of the restored kingdom when Christ returns? That's what's being described here. That's the future for God's people. A place with no violence. A place where... We will be wealthy beyond imagination with all the riches that the eternal kingdom has to in store for us. Where we will be together with God's people in God's presence forever and we will not need the sun because he will be the light at the center of all of our existence. And we will be righteous, finally, completely, perfectly righteous in his presence well, if you understand that picture of the future, that preferable mental image of the future that's in chapter 60, then when you start chapter 61, it's about the one who will make all of this possible. How do we find ourselves in this wonderful promised land with, all, with the very presence of God, seeing the face of God, being perfectly righteous, and having all of our needs met? How does it happen? Verse 1 of chapter 61, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. 
That's not Isaiah speaking. That's the Lord Jesus Christ speaking there. He's the anointed one. That's what the word Messiah means. The word Messiah means anointed one. Isaiah is giving us the words of Jesus Christ himself. And really, the whole book of Isaiah is given to give us a picture of who Jesus Christ is and what he would come to do. We know so many details in advance about who the Messiah would be based on what Isaiah reveals to us in his prophecy 700 years before he was born in Bethlehem. Isaiah tells us that Jesus Christ is the one who would be the Emmanuel, born of a virgin, the one called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, the one who would reign over his kingdom forever. Isaiah tells us that Jesus Christ is the one who is both the root of Jesse, the family of David, and the shoot from the stump of Jesse. The one who would establish a righteous kingdom where the wolf would dwell with the lamb. The one who would bring about the reality that the earth would be as full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The one who would make all this possible by the most surprising means possible, which would be by being despised and rejected by men, bearing our griefs and carrying our sorrows, being pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities, healing us by his own wounds. This is the anointed one. This is the Messiah, the prophet, the priest, the king, the ultimate of those three offices. And when Jesus went public, when Jesus began his public ministry, he went to his hometown, Nazareth, and he stood up in the synagogue, and he was given the scriptures, and he opened them to this very passage, Isaiah 61. Let me read to you this account from Luke's Gospel, chapter 4. And Jesus came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as it was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today... This scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Can you imagine the impact of the people sitting there? This is the one that Isaiah was talking about. This is the one who's going to bring this glorious kingdom that's described in Isaiah 60 to come to pass. This is the one who is the virgin-born Emmanuel. This is the branch from the stump of Jesse. This is the suffering servant who died to redeem God's people. This is the anointed one who would bring the good news that would transform the universe. The vision of God's people is simply Jesus Christ. Who he is and what he has done. He is at the center of the vision of every true church of Christ. Who he is and what he has done. In Mark chapter 1 it says, When Jesus came into Galilee, he says he was proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. 
What Isaiah prophesied is coming to pass. That's what his good news was. Because he had come to make it possible. Goes on in Isaiah 61 to speak of the nature of this good news. What is the good news? Well, the Messiah would come to bring healing. Broken hearts would be bound up. They would be bandaged. They would be healed. The brokenness of our hearts because of our own sin and the sins of others would be healed and made well. The good news of Jesus Christ was that there would be deliverance in him for captives and prisoners. They would be set free. And that's not talking primarily about those who are in literal prisons or those who are literally being oppressed by, 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 uh, by the, the strong in this world. It's speaking primarily of spiritual deliverance, of spiritual captivity, of spiritual addiction to sin. And yes, it will lead to being freed from physical restraints, but it's rooted in an internal change, a freedom from sin and its effects. And the good news goes on to say it'll bring comfort to those who mourn. The mourning will end, and what will replace the mourning according to this good news of this Messiah? Worship. The garments of praise. Some people read this and think, well, Jesus came to bring about social justice, and certainly he did. But social justice cannot happen if it doesn't first begin in the heart of sinners, of spiritual freedom, spiritual deliverance, spiritual healing. And this was the good news that Jesus talked about. The good news of Isaiah 61 is the good news that he talked about in the Sermon on the Mount when he said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. You see the future focus of that. Yes, it can happen today. It can begin to happen now. But our blessing is in the future when the fullness of the work of Christ is brought to pass. And what's the end result of this healing, delivering, comforting work of the Messiah? That they may be called oaks, of righteousness it's a visual image when he when when Isaiah was given this prophecy people were to think of a of a majestic oak tree the oak in Palestine we have all kinds of trees here we may think of other trees besides oaks when we think of large strong majestic trees but to people in Palestine in Isaiah's day that was the largest strongest tree that they could think of A tree in Scripture, and I would challenge you to look into this. Just follow the metaphor of a tree in Scripture. When a tree is used as a picture of spiritual reality, it's always a picture of either a healthy, vibrant child of God, a disciple, individual disciple, or of the church or the people of God in general. That's how the image of a tree is used over and over. It's either used of an individual disciple of the Messiah Christ or of a church that serves the Christ. It's used repeatedly. I'll just give you one clear example. Psalm 1, verse 3. 
Speaking of the disciple, he says, He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season and its leaf does not wither. That's the meaning behind the logo of Oakwood, the logo we've had for many years. We just updated it a year ago, but it's been the same basic logo for many years. If you look carefully at that picture, what it is, is an oak of righteousness that is planted by the streams of living water and its roots are growing deep into the open book, the word of God. That's the basic motto that we draw from our vision statement is that we want to be oaks of righteousness, growing roots, bearing fruit, and branching out. Growing roots deep into God's word, which produces fruit of holiness and worship that leads to branching out with the gospel of Jesus Christ to those who need to hear it. The oak tree is a symbol of strength and stability and longevity. And this is our hope because of who Christ is and what he has done for us. Broken hearts made whole and healthy. No longer enslaved to the sins that plague our lives and that oppress us by, by the sins of others. No longer grieving over sins and its, its sin and its effects, but worshiping God. And notice how this brief passage ends. It's all God's work. Oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. And this is the most exciting part of the passage because it's not based on our effort. It's not based on what we must do. It's based on what he has done and will do. It is God's work. We are the planting of the Lord. And anything good in us goes to him and to his glory. You know, we preach Reformed theology here, and it's a very important part of the gospel that we preach, that this is God's work. It's all of grace, not by works. God begins the work. God does the work in us and through us. And God completes the work. We long to become oaks of righteousness. We long to help others become oaks of righteousness. This is the very same vision statement in different words that Paul gives for himself and his ministry in Colossians chapter 1. Listen to this. Colossians chapter 1 verses 28 and 29. Christ we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ... For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Struggling, straining, working, suffering, but doing it with the, with the power that he works in us. And what's the goal? Oaks of righteousness. Being mature in Christ. Well, how do we get from here to there? That's the difference between vision and mission. There's a lot of confusion over how those terms are used. Sometimes people use them as synonyms and sometimes mix, people mix up the definitions of them. But, but a vision is that, as we defined it, a clear mental picture of a preferable future imparted by God. It's a picture, it's a visual image of where we're going to be, where we want to be, where we're, where we're striving to be. But a mission is how do we get from where we are right now to there. That's the mission. 
It's like if my vision was to be visiting Niagara Falls later this year, my vision was seeing myself standing, by, you know, having a mental image of myself standing by Niagara Falls in all of its glory and wonder. That's my, my, uh, my uh, mental image. My mission is how am I going to get from where I am right now into there? It means saving some money. It means making sure my car can make the trip. It means filling my car with gas. It means getting a good map or hooking up my GPS or whatever it takes and making all the right turns. Those are mission questions. How are we going to get from here to there? But my vision is being there. Being there. And that's the vision of our church. Being there. Oaks of righteousness. And not being satisfied until we're there. Christ gave this mission, again, mission, to every true church. He said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That's the mission of the church. The vision is Isaiah 60, of us standing in the very presence of God, made perfect in righteousness, seeing the glory of God in his fullness, living with him in perfection in a renewed heavens and earth forever. Well, how do we measure our progress? We can't measure it just by how many people are here on a Sunday morning. There are churches that are headed in the entirely wrong direction that have lots of people sitting in their buildings on Sunday morning. That's not how we measure our progress. Can't measure it by how many programs or ministry initiatives you have. You can't measure it by the size of your budget. You can't measure it by the size or the, or the beauty of your building. How do you measure it? Well, this is where you talk about mission, and that's where we talk about, in our church, the four marks of an oak of righteousness, the four marks of an oak of righteousness, four areas of maturity that we're working towards in both our lives as individuals and as a church. First one is discipleship, and these are going to sound familiar to you if you know the ministry of Oakwood. Discipleship, knowing Christ by knowing his word and knowing it well, knowing him better by knowing his word better, and learning how to implement the word of God into your life and to live your life according to the word of God so that you might become like Christ. Secondly, worship, glorifying God, both in our gathered times together, but in the way you live your life, worship. For the third area is hospitality. And by hospitality, we'll get into that, but that doesn't mean just being friendly. It means loving one another the way that Christ taught us to love one another well. And the fourth area is outreach. Sharing that good news about the Messiah that Isaiah talks about with those who don't know Christ, that they might find the same life and eternal life that we have. The whole organization of our ministry is, is based around those four marks of an oak of righteousness. Discipleship, worship, hospitality, and outreach. And we're going to be talking about these four marks of an oak of righteousness over the next month or so. And we will get into some specifics. But when, you know, when people think about a vision statement, they talk, well, okay, Pastor Keel is going to talk about our, our vision statement. Maybe you thought you were going to come this morning and hear about how many churches we hope to plant or how many uh, ministry initiatives we, we seek to implement over the next few years or how we're going to grow our, our leadership base or how we're going to improve our communication and organization. 
Those are all good things, and we are working on all those things. And we will talk about some of those specifics, both in the sermons to come and, and in our times together otherwise. But it was important that we begin by saying that, that that's not our vision. Our vision isn't how many churches we're going to plant or how big our building is going to be or how many ministry initiatives we're going to carry out. Our vision is Christ and his work and what he is doing and what he is going to do in us to keep that before us. That becoming oaks of righteousness is what we're about. Everything that we do here is about that. All these other things, church planting and buildings and ministry initiatives and all that, these are good things, but they're a byproduct of a biblical vision. They're just a means to the end of Christ and his gospel. Kevin DeYoung, Pastor Kevin DeYoung, um, wrote a book several years ago that was very helpful to a lot of people. It's called Just Do Something. And the basic idea of that book was is that too many Christians hyper-spiritualize the idea of finding God's will for their life. You know, it's like, oh, you know, I just want God to write it in the sky. He's got to give me a sign. You know, he's, I want to put out a fleece so I can know whether he, he wants me to marry this woman or that woman. Or whether he wants me to take this job or that job. He wants me to live here or live there. And, and we just get bound up and paralyzed because we want to know God's perfect will. It's like he's got it written on something somewhere. We just need to find where it's written. But God doesn't lead us that way. And that's what, the point of, of Kevin DeYoung's book is we just need to be faithful in pursuing God's revealed will. And as we do that, if we are faithful in serving God's revealed will in Scripture, he will lead us into the specifics. The specifics are not nearly as important as the vision that we're headed towards, the goal that we're seeking. And the problem is you get focused on these byproducts and, and these other measurements when it's all about where you're going. We long to become oaks of righteousness, growing roots, bearing fruit, and branching out. We need to be faithful in pursuing that goal. Let's pray. Father, thank you for sending Christ. Thank you that you have opened our eyes and changed our hearts, enabled us to understand who he is and why he came. And Lord, I thank you for the many, many, many different pictures of our preferable future that you have placed in scripture to guide us, to direct us, to, to fill us with hope and fill us with energy and, and enthusiasm for every day of our life and service here in this fallen and, and wicked world. Father, instill deep within us that, that, and, and an increasingly clear picture of that vision that you gave to Isaiah. The vision that Christ came not only to, to reveal to us, but to provide the way for us to accomplish it. And thank you, Lord, for your grace that's made that possible. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.